Hi there, Glocal citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around manifesting a new world. I am your host, Florence Adu, coming to you again from Brooklyn. It's still summer in Brooklyn. It's still slightly drought-ish. And I just want to say I went hiking in Cold Spring, New York over the weekend and The burn of the green was so interesting and the drying up of the streams and rivers like in in the the park were, it was kind of a shock. And so I just want to engage all of you listeners. If you're not doing something for the environment, do something for the environment. We can all do our part in some way, shape or form, like buy a water bottle. Stop with the single use water bottles. That's one, right? So just think about that. I say that because I'm on a little bit of an activist stint here because my guest, I feel, is an activist. And we'll get more into that as we speak. She holds a PhD in sociology and masters in multidisciplinary gender studies from the University of Cambridge, in addition to a bachelor's in anthropology from Stanford University. Her research, writing, and talks are centered on gender and race issues in the U.S., especially as these relate to the pervasive erasure of Black women. Her debut book, The Three Mothers, How the Mothers of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and James Baldwin Shaped a Nation is a New York Times bestseller, as well as a New York Times editor's choice and an Amazon editor's pick. She was also previously the first partner of Stockton. And in this role, she co-authored the report on the status of women in Stockton to help guide future policy decisions with the experiences of diverse women in mind. As a result of this work, she was named one of six pivotal power brokers in the Bay Area by San Francisco Magazine in 2019. She has published articles on topics ranging from the importance of inclusivity and feminism to addressing the unique burden Black mothers carry in the U.S. for Time Magazine, New York Magazine, The Guardian, CNN, Motherly, Blavity, Huffington Post, Darling Magazine, and for Harriet. Dr. Anna Malika Tubbs, welcome to the podcast. Thank you having me. I'm so happy to be here. Yes, 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 yes. So let's jump right in. I always start with where are you from? Where are you local? And what is your craft? This is such a good question. And the reason for this podcast, because it's always hard to answer where are you from for me, because I grew up all over. And I often say I'm not from anywhere or I'm from everywhere. And then people have, you know, so many questions. Tell us where you're from. And so I say, okay, you tell me where I'm from after I give you my full spiel. So I was born in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Both my parents were lawyers who really wanted their kids to have an international experience. My dad is Ghanaian and my mom grew up in Washington, always wanting to see the world. And so they kind of brought this together and said, we're going to show our kids things firsthand. And so we lived in places like Dubai, Estonia, Mexico, Sweden, Azerbaijan. Uh, We moved back to the States when I was 13, 12 or 13, and lived in Laramie, Wyoming for four years. Wow. Yeah. I call it the most exotic place of all. (laughs) Yeah. 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 (laughs) Then we were in um, Indiana, uh, where I was. I went to boarding school, and my parents decided to go abroad again. And I was the youngest. So uh, they were sort of ready to travel, and I wanted to graduate in the States. I went to boarding school in Indiana then went to Stanford for undergrad, and then went back and forth from Stockton, California, and Cambridge, England for my um, graduate work. But I'd also met who would become my husband, and that's why I was going back and forth to Stockton, because he needed to be there. So where am I from? Who knows? I'll let your 
answers and answer that. But now we're in Los Angeles. We are local here and loving it. Moved here about a year and a half ago. And I'm just loving the creative energy of LA and just so much collaboration and a lot of really strong female mentorship, which is beautiful. I really appreciate it. My craft, I am a writer. So I was, I was kind of getting into it from what I was saying with that kind of mentorship and the creativity. So I write books and so far have published my first one that we talked about in the intro. And I'm working on, um, well, I've been working on a novel since before The Three Mothers. I've been working on it for several years, but I took a little bit of a break from it to start writing The Three Mothers. So I'm back to the novel, the fiction, and we'll see if we can sell it this year. And then um, I have a book deal for two more nonfiction books. So we'll see what happens there and starting to translate all of that into screen. So I'm taking a stab at writing my first screenplay. What happens there? So just generally, I'm a writer and a storyteller um, who has these degrees in social sciences, but not because I want to be in academia anytime soon, maybe later, but I'm more interested in translating that theory into things that are much more tangible and easily understood. I'm all about bringing more people together in conversation. And I, I don't like the exclusivity sometimes of the ivory tower and the jargon that keeps people out of the conversation. So very anti that. And I think there's a lot of ways where this content can be heard differently. So that's through speeches, through books, through TV shows. That's what I'm all about. Yeah, nice. So we have a couple of things in common. One is I too am from Ghana. So my parents are both from Ghana. So that's one thing, which I didn't know until I came across it doing research on you. And I was like, yeah. oh my goodness. Okay. So Ghana is, is part of your heritage. Yeah. Um, do you know where in Ghana and, and, and have you spent time there? We've spent a lot of time there in Ghana. So we would go every year for Christmas. This was like our Christmas trip because my family's always been actually pretty spread out since I was the last one to leave the nest. Um, at many points, we were all traveling, but we would all come back to Ghana every year. But we would visit different cities in Ghana. So of course, you're in Accra. Of course, we go to Kokorbite is the place where my parents were local for the last several years. And my dad's there. So right on the beach. Um, definitely a spoiled experience every time we were visiting. Yeah. <laughs> um, we're part of the Achim tribe, so we always go and visit and make sure that we, you know, kind of pay our dues in that way. Um, I was named after my grandmother, who was one of our queen mothers. So I have to go and make sure that, you know, that my face is seen, but also that I'm learning about my history. It's a really important part of my life and something that my dad always emphasized, that we know who we were. Um, and that we always think about that with other people, which, of course, leads into my book a little bit in terms of there's always an origin story. And you didn't do this on your own, Anna. You know, people came before you and it's a very humbling experience. You should never think of yourself as some separate individual floating through the world, but instead one who is rooted in history and people who fought for you and, and lived for you and joyfully lived for you as well. So I was always very aware of my Ghanaian history and um, keeping that very current. But through the pandemic, we haven't been able to travel there. I've had two young kiddos since. So it's been a little while, but I hope to go back soon. My dad is still there. Wow. So close. I have some land in the village right before Kokobite, Oshie. Oh, really? Yeah, Oshie. So, um, and I spent a lot of time there. So yeah, because a lot of people don't understand Ghana's huge. You know, there's so many different things you can see in Ghana. And so everyone always just assumes like the capital city, but it's no, you know, a lot of us have very different experiences. In a Ghana. lot. I like that you said that you would always visit different cities because even a lot of Ghanaians never see more of the country. And so yeah. it sounds like your dad was, is an adventurer, right? So, so tell us how he, so how did your parents come to meet and, you know, create this global life for you? 
I should also say that I think my dad is actually less adventurous than I am, but he knows that I get bored very easily. And he's always like a little bit of, been annoyed by that with me, but he gets ready for it every time I visit. So he's like, we have an itinerary. All right. Like he always like my second name. So he's like, Malika, fine. I'm ready. Like we're going to see the fountains. We're going to go, or the, sorry, the waterfalls. We're going to go see the forest. We're going to go on all these different adventures. So it's not necessarily that he loves to do that, but he loves his daughter. <laughs> yeah. He's being a, he's being a, a, a dad daughter, a exactly. daughter dad. Yeah. That I think, what is it? Dad. <laughs> daughter dad, right? <laughs> what do they say? I think they say girl dad. Girl, girl dad. dad. Yes. Girl dad. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. That's the term. Mm-hmm. Um, but okay, now I got lost as to what we were actually talking about. How your, how your family came here across. Yeah. And how they came together. Yes. Mm-hmm. So it's a really fascinating story. And my mom was born in Washington. I always said Walla Walla, Washington. It's actually Clarkston, Washington, but I just think Walla Walla sounds funny. But so it was a small town. Her dad was a judge and she always wanted to be a lawyer because she was really interested in, in kind of the way people really kind of looked up to him in their little town and the power that he held, but also that he could maybe open doors and have these opportunities to make things more equitable for people around him. But she had this dream and her parents told her, that's not really something that girls do. You know, that's something that we expect that our one son might follow um, in his dad's footsteps, but it's not really something that women should focus on. You should think about, yes, you can get your education, but really ultimately it should be that you're going to have a family and be a wonderful wife and know how to cook and clean and et cetera. And so she was a rebel and very much felt that this was wrong and she was going to pursue her own path. And so she later put herself through law school. Um, she then traveled abroad. And that's where she met my dad in Sweden. So she was a teacher. She was a, well, a professor really in law school in Sweden. And my dad had left Ghana during a trying time in Ghana's politics where he didn't feel very safe. Um, so often refers to himself as a political refugee. And Sweden became a citizen there. And so he was a student in the law program at the University of Stockholm while my mom was teaching there. And she says that at first when she met him, he was kind of annoying. She's like, I'm not really interested. But then (laughs) (laughs) we saw him performing at a concert later that same week. And he was, I guess, very attractive on stage is what everything (laughs) changed. And she said, I want to meet this guy. And so they started dating. They had my brother there. My mom had already had my older sister um, in her first marriage. Um, And then they kind of came together had my brother in Sweden and then came back to the States and had me. And so they, I I should also say I'm mixed. So my mom was white, my dad, Ghanaian, and they were talking always about how the world didn't celebrate difference enough. This was really important to my parents, like not tolerating difference and not even only accepting it, but celebrating it. And the strengths that come, the more diverse we all are, the more diverse our teams are, et cetera. So they wanted to give us as much as possible that experience of seeing difference firsthand and really appreciating it, seeing the different ways of living in the world, believing, loving, knowing that there isn't just one way. There's never just one truth. There are multiple ones. And I really think that's where my storytelling came in, because you realize when you're moving from country to country that everyone's just telling stories, you know, about who their heroes are or, you know, who the important people are and how much that can shift depending who the storyteller is. And I always tell this interesting kind of experience from my childhood. I was in Mexico when I first learned about the Mexican-American War. And then a couple of years later, moved to Laramie, Wyoming, and was learning again in history about the Mexican-American War. And I started laughing during class um, because it was just really interesting to me. Um, and my teacher said, this isn't funny. You know, we're talking about war. You know, people are dying. And I'm like, no, I'm sorry. It's just that I heard a completely different story before. 
very aware of it. So I then realized with stories is power and really the importance of when you have, when you've seen things firsthand that a lot of people haven't, and instead people are believing what they've seen in the news. Um, or the fact that I'd gone to Ghana multiple times and then I was seeing in the news only these interpretations of Ghanaian people that were very myopic um, and didn't represent the experiences that I had seen, at least not all of the experiences. Um, and then we're ignoring experiences in the U.S. around poverty, etc. So I just realized the gift that my parents gave me early and the responsibility I had with that gift and that mindset of we all have to kind of add more voices to the stories that are being heard. That mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I love that you that you said that the gift that they gave you, because it truly is a gift to to, first of all, understand the notion of celebrating the differences between us all. And I think that that is what is missing in our ability to kind of come together as one is that we seem not to be able to celebrate those differences and 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 recognize diversity as a part of the value chain. So, yeah, interesting. Okay, so your parents met, you lived all around, and I'm assuming it was, you know, work that took them to these different opportunities. And so you've embraced storytelling as part of your story. When did you kind of start to understand, and it sounds like your mom was a big inspiration in in writing a lot of your works, but when did you start to understand that you were going to pursue storytelling as your way? Oh, that's such a good question. And definitely I have to, oh, I mean, I shout out my mom a ton. This is like the first time I've talked this much about my dad. <laughs> He's going to be happy. I'll send him this. <laughs> mom, mom, mom. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> because my mom became a lawyer, she was very big on advocating for women's rights and children's rights, not only abroad, but also in the United States and her own experiences and making sure more women became lawyers and advocates for change. And so really, yes, it was the jobs that took them different places, but they prioritized the travel over the job. So they would, if like, you know, because lawyers are jacks of all trades, they can kind of go, you know, where they fit in. And so if a professorship opened up like a temporary position, or if it was, you know, I'm going to do some consulting for state department or whatever, and something opened up that they could fit in, they would do and say, we haven't been there. Okay, let's go. So that's kind of how they decided that we were going to travel all over. But of course, my mom influenced this notion in my mind that the world is better and societies are better when women are doing well. And when mothers very specifically are doing well, and when we can give support to those like that group of people that have been socialized to care about people beyond themselves. It's not this individualism. It's I take care, I care about community, and I'm a leader in that way. So I always saw the power and influence of mothering early on and the power and influence of women. And my mom always made sure I paid attention to that. So that was always at the back of my mind. I wanted to do something around womanhood. So in undergrad, I was interested in anthropology because it went along with my sense of there's not just one truth in the world, there are multiple, and we are all kind of participants and just observing the way the world works um, and not trying to just find the one right way of doing things, but just studying how culture impacts us. Um, but then I became interested in thinking about gender in a way that's much more intersectional. Of course, my mom was a white woman and I had a different experience as a black woman. And she often spoke about that. She would say, my experience is not going to be the same as yours. I'm not going to pretend I know what it's like to walk in your shoes. But I realized I wanted to study that more, have a better understanding of, oh, and this world isn't just man, woman. There is so much beyond the gender binary. I need to better understand 
understand this if I'm going to be an advocate for change and an advocate for equity. So that's why I did um, gender studies. I also knew research was something I loved, but I didn't really want to be on this path where I was just writing and publishing simply to become a professor. And it's not to say that those who want to do that, that there's anything wrong with it. We definitely need those academics who are going to be all about that really intense research and making sure that there's years and years that go into it. And they publish these wonderful articles and journals, but that just wasn't inspiring to me. I wanted to talk to people about what was happening right now. I wanted it to still be very relevant, very current. I wanted to participate in those conversations around race, around gender, around justice. Like That was what motivated me and really drove me. And so I found inspiration in people like Melissa Harris Perry and Mark Lamont Hill, who were taking their theory and making it understandable and very accessible. And I thought I could, I could do that. I really love what they're these storytellers. And then I found other kind of inspirations like activists and organizers like Alicia Garza and Trees Khan Kohlers and thinking, oh, they're also storytellers. And they're also taking information and making it available to more people. So I thought, I can kind of forge my own path in this. And so that's when I realized I can use this theory and still love the research and be the proud nerd that I am. I love school, Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) learning, but I wanted to make it accessible. And that's when storytelling became the thing that I realized. I love making stories. I love participating in the creation of stories. As a Black woman, I became very aware of how powerful that could be stories from my perspective with the kind of training that I have, you know, the sort of, again, power that you're given in society. And it's an unfortunate thing in the US. But when you say I've been to Stanford, and I studied at Cambridge, more people are listening to me. And so I wanted something with that platform. So it just gives me a little opening to say, like all the things we've been talking about, let's celebrate difference. Let's really challenge the ugly histories that we've all lived. Let's challenge the stereotypes that we're using to speak about human beings. Um, let's make sure we're being complex in our representation, especially of Black women who have been so dehumanized in American history. So it just became, I became really aware that I could do that through stories. But there's so many different ways to tell stories. So that's like the, the beginning of my career is just, you know, right now I feel is the beginning. And I envision in like the next 10 years that there's just going to be many different forms of storytelling that maybe people know me for. That's awesome. So you mentioned that you're now in Los Angeles and you've been there for a year and a half. So mm-hmm. this is where I like to ask why the where? So you've lived all over and you've settled in the U.S. and California in particular. So why the where? How did you come to be living, working and playing where you currently are? We um, so I always now speak in the we because since getting married, having children, it's no longer an I thing. So it's so interesting when people are like, how are you? I'm like, we're good. I'm like, <laughs> Also fine, (laughs) but we came to live in LA after my husband was mayor of Stockton for um, Stockton, California, so Northern California. For listeners who don't maybe know where it is, after being there for four years, and we kind of were looking at what's next for us after this position that had really launched him into this public eye, and he was known as this kind of social innovator when it comes to what you can do in local office. And then we we were very surprised that he didn't win re-election. And there's a lot that we could get into there. There's a lot of podcasts you can listen to where he speaks about it. But 
we were really shocked. It was not what we were expecting. We thought we would be in Stockton for several more years. And so then it, it was a blessing in disguise in so many ways. We realized this world is our oyster. Like, where do we want to go? And we're now in this virtual world where we can work from wherever. What makes the most sense for both of our careers? And I had been happily in Stockton supporting his vision, supporting his mission, but I didn't fully realize how much that was confining me and how much people were kind of putting me in just the category of his partner. So we were honest with each other, what's going to be best for both of us. And my book had just been released. So that was February, 2021, when my book came out and we moved March of 2021. And um, we realized that we were looking in the Bay, but we'd already done school in the Bay. We were looking in DC, but we thought, we've done the politics thing. Maybe we take a little bit of a break from that, if we're being honest. And then we'd been to LA so many times, but we'd never lived here. And we had a lot of friends here. So I think having a community where you're moving is really important. We had a lot of mentors here. That's also very important. And I wanted a place where there were young professionals who were maybe also starting families, and some that weren't choosing to, but some that were. We didn't have a lot of that in Stockton either. And so we came here and now I am so grateful that we did. It has blown my expectations out of the water. Those mentorships that I had have just grown. Those relationships have grown. And I've met so many people who are at the same stage of life as I am as well. As much as I love differences and we've been talking about celebrating differences, it's also really wonderful when you have people who are going through the same experiences as you are, that can be really helpful and from different backgrounds, but to have kids the same age um, is a really beautiful thing. And so, so many of my friendships now revolve around raising our children together. And I think that's really powerful in addition to my girlfriends and friends who I had from undergrad who also live in LA. So it's just the best combination. And in every conversation where I say, oh, I'm a writer, when I would say that in Stockton, it often felt like the response was, a little patronizing, sort of like, oh, sure, oh, you think that, great, that's, you know, versus here, immediately people say, what do you write, or I've heard of you, or I saw your interview on this or that, and it's just really inspiring for me. I feel like I'm coming out of a shell that I didn't realize was kind of forming around me, and it feels liberating, and I don't think it's kind of a coincidence, actually, that moving to LA, then the book made it on the bestseller list, because I was just connecting with more people and talking to more people and people who wanted to support me. And so much of making it on the bestseller list is just people knowing about your work. Location makes a huge difference. It really does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So let's talk about how the book came to be, right? Yeah. So you were studying, was it part of your PhD project? Like, you know, how does, okay, so typically that's that's a lot of how first books are coming back, come about. So tell us more about how you identified this as the subject and the business side as well. So finding an agent, finding a publisher, those things. So yeah, okay, if I lose track, you, you just get me back together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but when I, so when I started the PhD program, that's when I was already aware, I wanna be a storyteller. Mm-hmm. I wanna be known for my kind of storytelling and bringing people know, audiences together who might not typically participate in conversations around race and gender, as well as those that do and having like a table where we could meet each other. So I already knew that. And so when I was coming up with the topic for my PhD, I had a list of like my goals of what I hoped I would accomplish. 
number one was this was going to be one of my first books, if not the novel that I was pitching, then it would be one of my first books. Or and number two, that it would connect with many audience members, bring a lot of people together in conversation. Number three, that it would challenge the way we saw something in American history so that we would see it differently four, that it be a celebration of black women. And then five, I started to think about all the lessons my mom taught me around motherhood and the power of motherhood. So I wasn't a mom yet myself. A lot of people assume that I already was a mom because I wanted to celebrate moms. I wasn't. I think we all should care about moms, whether or not we choose to become mothers ever, because it really is the beginning of our societies. And so this is my list. And I even put in goals like it would be great if this makes it on the New York Times bestseller list, because then more people are going to be talking about this, not only because that's cool for me, but more importantly, people will be reading the book. So what does it take for a lot of people to be drawn to a book? And Hidden Figures also was released right around this time that I'm brainstorming what I want to do. I was so blown away by Margot Lee Shetterly's writing um, that went on to become the movie and the research that she did. And I wanted to be somebody who found other hidden figures. And then the second book was Isabel Wilkerson's Warmth of Other Sons, where she brings this trio together and they never meet, but we hear their stories and then now better understand this entire movement in American history. So these were all of my motivations, all the ways in which I'm kind of one, overwhelmed with excitement, but also like, what am I going to do? How am I going to narrow this down? I thought of these three men because patriarchy is often the thing that people are attracted to. Unfortunately, it's so ugly, but I used it as my hook that whether people were coming to the book to hear more about Black women, which was probably going to be the the least like reason that people would come to the book, to be honest, or if they were coming because they wanted to learn more about these men, they were going to walk away knowing three Black women's stories. So I said, okay, I'm going to use that. Um, I'm going to play with the patriarchy on purpose. If this book has the names MLK Jr., and Malcolm X um, and James Baldwin has had a renaissance moment, then I think more people are going to pick this up. And I also wanted to be part of this canon of incredible civil rights books. How cool would that be? And, you know, my vision of all these recommendations, my book could appear and be about Black women. And that would be so great. So these were my dreams. And I realized that the three women were all born within six years of each other. Their famous sons were all born within five years of each other. There was very little out there that I could find about them, but I found this fact (laughs) and I said, that's it. If they are together at the same time and all of these moments are happening in their lives, I don't even have to, you know, reduce their stories to tell them together. I can really celebrate the complexity and the diversity of three black women's stories. Just bring them together through time, just like Isabel Wilkerson did. And that's what was kind of the key and the light bulb that went off. But this was not an easy journey by any means. This is all my original research. I would say like 90% of it. There were some writers who had done work on Louise Little, um, and I could not have written the book without their research, uh, but very, very little. And so I'm calling local historians. I'm finding birth certificates and death certificates and land deeds if their families ever had them. I'm trying to interview family members. I'm trying to find the scholars who are experts in the sons and asking if they can share their archives with me, going through letters at the Schomburg and all these places around the country. So it was really piecing them together um, and my honor to do that um, because at every turn, every little bit that I found, I was really amazed by these three women, but also angered that we didn't know their stories before this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you, you did a wonderful job. The book, and I'll tell everyone, buy it. 
listen to it on audio because it really does give you, I think mothers say so much and, and to really know what the story is, the lineage of these these men through their mothers is so key because I think you make a really good point that they wouldn't have been the men that they were if it weren't for these these women that were Renaissance women. You know, they were activists, each of them in their own way. And so and I think that is something that women need to know now because we are looking at a generation that is going to really struggle if we don't have mothers that are activist mothers. And so, exactly. yeah, I, it's a, or, um, yeah, the burnout of mothers that a lot more people are paying attention to now. But I mean, that mothers have been experiencing for so long, especially black mothers. And I say to a lot of people who haven't yet read or listened to the book that these men, I mean, it's not the case in every mother child relationship. This is not the case where you can so directly say this child did this because mom did this. You know, there's always a way that, you know, mothers, birthing parents are influencing children. But in this three examples, it is undeniable that the sons do what they do because their mothers did it. For listeners who haven't read the book yet, it's Bertis Baldwin, who is a writer herself. She believes in the power of language and words, and she wants to help people confront the darkness in their lives to find healing, to see the light. And so her son goes on to become the famous writer who says he's a witness to the power of light through his writing. This is not random. It's that he's directly quoting his mom with MLK Jr., his mother, Alberta Williams King. She marches, she participates in boycotts. Her parents are the leaders of Ebenezer Baptist Church. She inherits the church and passes it on to her husband and her son. It's not the dad. <laughs> it's not MLK Jr. on own. The fact that she is well-educated, that her, Burtis, and Louise can all read and write. And these are Black girls born in the early 1900s. This is not something we can take for granted. This isn't really that normal if we look at it that way. The doors they're able to open for their sons to say, you will know how to read and write. You will know the power of words. You will know the power of activism because that is what I know. We cannot take that for granted. And to give Louise Little her moment as well, Malcolm X's mother, she's a radical activist. She believes in black nationalism. She's a Marcus Garvey follower. She's one of the branch secretaries. She writes for the Negro World newspaper. All of these things long before Malcolm X is even a thought in her mind. So she's just passing these lessons on to him. So a lot of people who haven't read the book think I'm only celebrating them for birthing their children, which, yes, alone is enough. We do need to applaud for that. That is huge. Um, what they do to allow their children to survive in, in America, in Jim Crow America. But I'm also saying if you are a fan of these men and you don't know these women, you actually don't know these men at all, nor how they became who they were. And you should study it and learn because the, the men themselves were actually aware of it as well. Absolutely. Okay, so you come up with this story that is very relevant to most Black people, right? And then you have to sell it. So how, how did you go about, you know, procuring a publisher, making all that happen to get on the New York Times bestseller list? Yeah. Thank you for bringing me back to it. I knew I missed a part of your question. <laughs> <laughs> it happens to me all the time. No problem. Anyway, so I was shopping my novel that I was talking about. And I thought, again, in my mind, that was going to be my first book. But what I didn't realize is that with fiction, you have to write the full book and it has to be nearly perfect before you sell it. With nonfiction, you write the proposal. So it's the idea that you have, which is also complicated. It's not like I'm saying it's easy, but in comparison to a whole book, pretty easy to write your ideas down, say who you are and why you should be the person to write it. And you give one sample chapter. 
So I was already working on this for my PhD. Anyways, I'm shopping the novel. My husband tweets like, Anna's looking for a book agent. (laughs) And we're like reaching out to Stanford people in our network and whatever. Like, is anyone a book agent who wants to represent me? Like really just like Hail Marys. And I'm sending query letters everywhere. So you just do what you need to do. Like, don't be afraid. Don't be you know, don't feel embarrassed that you're pursuing your dream, get it out there, find the people you need to find, get the feedback. I sent it to a couple of agents who gave me feedback who didn't end up being my agents, but were still very helpful in my um, progression and trajectory. So one agent in particular gets back to me and she represents a writer who I absolutely love, another black Stanford grad, Britt Bennett. And she says, hey, I heard you're looking for a book agent. I'd love to get to know you a little better. Let's get on a phone call. I sent her my novel. So Julia Curran, um, who's my agent still, (laughs) I sent her my novel and she goes, I love the writing. I think this is really creative. I think it's going to eventually someday be a great book. But, you know, she explains the difference to me of novels and nonfiction. And she says, do you have something else you're working on? And I was like, oh, I was so disappointed, like really sad. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, I mean, I'm getting my PhD and I'm working on talking about these three women. And I'm like, do you think it's ready? Like, should should that be what I sell first? And she goes, absolutely. Uh, yes. Like that sounds brilliant. Like send me, let's work on a proposal for that. And so we ended up selling it and I got the deal for it before I'd finished my PhD program. And in the end, the book came out before I finished my PhD program. So when you open the book, you'll see it says like PhD candidate. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, I was trying to finish the dissertation. So I'm doing both at the same time at that point. That was complicated because also in the middle of it all, I had a child. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, you were you were doing it. It was a lot. Yeah, so I was pregnant, writing both. And then my son was born and I'm like getting all the edits ready for the launch of the book and preparing for my viva is what we call it in the UK. But my oral defense is what we would call it in the US. It was a com- It was a busy time, very, very busy time. But I was on my path to my dream. So it was like, you know, I didn't need any more motivation. I was working at all hours when I could and out with my son and nursing him and reading things out loud to him, drafts, etc. So that was that part. So then fast forward to the New York Times bestseller list. I was not one of those writers who instantly became a bestseller. So the book was well anticipated. I was on a ton of like most anticipated lists and yada, yada, yada. But at the very beginning, we were just like a little bit short of making it on the list the first week. And then everyone was kind of surprised that we even sold that many copies from the beginning. But if you don't make it on the bestseller list immediately, bookstores don't really buy as copies of your book. So when authors are saying, please buy, you know, um, what's it called? Pre-orders. We're saying it because that's how bookstores are going to determine how many copies they're going to buy of your book. And then I say this because then we have Women's History Month. I was on so many podcasts, like people were getting really excited, like the momentum kept going for the book, but then my book sold out everywhere and I hadn't yet made it on the list. So it was really frustrating. Like imagine this, book sells out, but you're not on a bestseller list. That's so frustrating. Exactly. (laughs) I'm calling my publisher and my editor, who I love. Bryn Clark is like one of my favorite people in the world. And um, she edited the book for me, um, with me, I should say. But I'm like, what the heck? I'm, where are the copies? Like, you all don't believe in me. Like, why, what, blah, 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 blah. I'm so upset. And she goes, Anna, I'm, this is just like how the math works with booksellers and like with, I'm so sorry, but you know, like, we're going to get this fixed. Like, don't you worry. I'm like, all right. So then I have another campaign. I was on so many podcasts doing so many talks. Like I worked so incredibly hard 
coming around for Mother's Day. I'm like, this is our next opportunity. People are gonna want this. Timing is Day. everything. Mm-hmm. Timing is everything. I get invited to do a bunch of TV shows for Mother's Day, um, a bunch of interviews out there that you can all find if you want to. And again, the book sells out. And we hadn't yet, like we thought we had ordered enough copies. The book sold out everywhere. Very exciting. A ton of celebrities were messaging or tweeting about the book and sharing about the book, but still I don't get it on the list. And I'm like, (laughs) you're so close. Remember now I'm pregnant with my second baby. Yeah. And I'm like, just tired. I'm like, what the heck is happening? And at that time, I think we were maybe, I don't know, again, like a thousand, whatever, we're short, but just by a teeny bit, just a teeny bit. So I was like, you know, y'all, I like call a meeting with my whole team. And I'm like, this is just really frustrating for me because I don't know what else I'm supposed to do. I'm working incredibly hard. We're getting so much traction behind this book. You know, like all these incredible people were sharing it, excited about it, so much support, and it's just not making it on the list. And so they kept telling me, like, don't focus so much on it. It's not the ultimate. You know, there's all these things that you can do other than get on the list. And I'm like, no, I get that. I know they're like, you were an editor's pick. Like Amazon had a billboard of your book. Like, what else do you want? And I'm like, honestly, it's not only for me. Yeah, it's the story, right? To be on the list. And so many people don't even know about books until they make it on the list. So that's why I was so focused, like laser focused that Alberta, Burtis, and Louise be on this list. And so I said, okay, the paperback is coming out in January. I have a TED Talk that I'm giving. Also, little small thing, my daughter was born in August and I was giving a TED Talk um, just a little bit after that. And then the, the TED Talk was going to be released in December. So I, I did it earlier. I'm trying to remember what the actual dates. It doesn't really matter. But I had a bunch on my plate and I'm like, I want to time this TED Talk with the paperback release. And I am telling you all for the last time, you better have copies because I will do what I tell you I'm going to do. I'll do as many talks as I need to do. I will work so incredibly hard and was able to hire a new publicity team as well. So it was really critical, like hiring people who see your vision too and who believe in you. And it's not going to be this kind of patronizing conversation. Like not everybody does it. And like, you know, whatever. Instead, they were like, all right, like, we'll do our part. You do your part. So LCOM, they're the best. So wonderful to work with. And just really worked my butt off. And finally, 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 we were number six on the list that week. And it was insane. But then what was even crazier is once it hit the list, and I told everyone this, once it hits the list and all these people find out about this book they would have wanted to read, it's going to stay on the list. Like, just watch. And then week two comes around, still on the list. Week three came around, still on the list. And then I think we were like not on the list week four and came back again week five. So that's really insane. It doesn't happen often. You know, you're on the list. That's already really crazy. It's very rare for others. But to be on there for more than just one week, sometimes in someone's career, you're not going to be on four weeks with multiple books. So yeah, that's that was the long, long story, which I've never told publicly before. So there it is. <laughs> Yay, we get the scoop on local citizens. <laughs> you heard it here first. You heard it here first. Yes, the yes. Experience is not an easy journey. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I mean, this is, I love talking about the business of being able to do what you do because there's all this behind the scenes that people don't know anything about. Yeah. So, so I seem very by chance, you know, 
Exactly, exactly. So, so you've, you've walked the walk and you're talking the talk and, and getting it done. Yeah. So let's talk about talk. So I have a question that I ask everyone, which is local speak. So we want to know what you hear. So I ask you to share a word, a phrase or saying that is a part of your uh, local experience and how or why you come to value it as a local speak. So you can choose LA or some other, maybe England, London, Cambridge, somewhere where you have something that rings in your ears as, as a local speak. Uh, one that always sticks with me is Hella. <laughs> ah, yes. That is so <laughs> Bay Area. <laughs> I love it. But I will say, I have a bunch of weird ones that just come up randomly because I've lived so many different places. And uh-huh. then just kind of a mixture of so many, you know, like saying pop and soda and saying both standing with me. But Hella, I say all the time. I just think it really emphasizes what you need to emphasize. That it's a great way of saying it. That's hella annoying. Or I didn't have a work to get on the list. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or I'm hella tired right now. I just think it's great. Even if a lot of people don't say it anymore, it sticks with me. I, I feel like things don't go out of style. You know, I think you're right. It. Yeah, I think you're right. There, there are generations of people that keep words relevant. So yes, Yes, I'll be one of them. Yeah, that's hella cool. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay, so we've got a good grasp of where you have been. And so you spoke about a novel and different ways of storytelling. So tell us about some of maybe not giving us a scoop on the novel, but kind of the difference that you've experienced in expanding your storytelling genres and your techniques and what inspired this novel that is forthcoming. Yeah. Ooh, I have so much to say about that because now I'm delving into screen stuff. So it's really fascinating for me, like the differences of how it all works. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Everything is so different, but I'm the kind of person who thinks, let me give it a shot. You never know what you might be good at. And interestingly, the feedback that I get on Three Mothers quite often is that it reads like a novel and people don't know that I've been writing this novel for a long time. So they're sort of you know, you feel like you're introduced to these characters and you feel like you're really in love with them. And it's not the academic writing that I did for my dissertation. So I have a lot of experience with different writing. And I do hope in my career, I can really uh, not perfect, but just really have experience with all these different forms and just be a storyteller who can shift. But the difference with fiction, other than the fact that it needs to be really perfect. And in nonfiction, you have the luxury of working from an editor earlier on. So you feel a little bit more of a sense of like, I got this because, you know, she's going to tell me if it's crap or not. Versus with a novel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, for a while, but I do have to shout out my agent again. She's really been on this journey with me, with this novel, and I'm um, giving me the feedback that she thinks buyers would give me so that we can get the best deal when we go out with it. But you feel very vulnerable because you're imagining this world, you know? So with Three Mothers, the story wrote itself once I could find the information. And I, of course, have to be the one who's making some of the connections for the reader. But really, when you read the stories, you'll see, like, they're incredible women. So it's like, I just, I'm an, I'm so hyped to just get it on page and on paper, I should say. With the novel, you don't even know where your brain's going to go. You kind of just like sit down and you go, yeah, I guess the character could say that now. And Oh, yeah, okay, no, maybe that. And then you kind of surprise yourself and you're like, oh, should I kill someone? <laughs> should someone die? And I don't know. Now let's keep them alive. It's just like you're this, this constant. Yeah, that's what I love about fiction is that you're creating this whole world around it, you know? And just as my own writing, because I think I have a similar, right? 
technical writing background, but I have always been this creative. Like I remember summers with one of my best friends, we would write novels all summer long. Yeah. And so we would just create these worlds. And I just remember even then doing research, I got the encyclopedia out because I wanted them to live in Connecticut. Right. So I created this whole Connecticut world. And so, yeah, so I I hear you on that is like, yeah, you can just kind of flow anywhere with it. But a lot of people don't realize that, like you said, for novels, you have to do a lot of research too. you know, to if you you can't just like randomly make things up, you have to look up random things. You know, I'm in I'll actually, that'll give away too much of the novel. I was going to say a story. Later on in the future, I'll tell you what it was I was about to say. <laughs> okay, good. We'll have you back for the next, for the next <laughs> lunch. But I'm going to yeah later. Uh, but no, it's a lot of research and a lot of work. So it is kind of interesting because you don't have that advance to do that research like you do for a nonfiction, but you still have to keep the time to do that kind of deep research to have really brilliant books like Britt Bennett's Spanish Half. The amount of research she would have had to do to tell us this story of time and history in the U.S. and passing and all the different cities that her characters travel to. It's it's amazing, probably just as much time spent maybe as I did for, for the three mothers. So it's fascinating. And then now translating that into screens, I recently just wrote what I would envision as like the first episode of, a, of the limited series for the three mothers. Because we've had some conversations around that and I've just started to realize that I just want it in the right hands and I want it to be treated the way it deserves to be treated and not like a stereotypical representation of black mothers. And so I just kind of feel like maybe at least if I get it started, it'll be more the vision that I think will be appropriate for their lives. But anyways, I'm thinking now, you know, from the perspective of how people will see this, and I realized I'm a very visual thinker. I already maybe am thinking screenwriting. I don't know. Again, it might be crap. But we'll see. Is something that I might be good at, like maybe even better than writing like an academic book. I'm, I mean, think I'm a little bit more inspired by it. I was just like really flowing and like, this is cool. And you can see the characters moving and less said and more is seen. And I think it's just really powerful. So I'm having fun, whether it becomes something or not, that's another thing for storytelling. There's a lot of things you're going to work on that people might not ever see. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so this is good segue into my mindset hack question. So this is where I ask you to share um, your favorite or innovative mindset hack. So this is one that you can imagine or one that you know of or one that you practice. Hmm, my favorite mindset hack. Oh, that's so good. Oh, goodness. I have a lot. For me, okay, this is a big one with storytelling that there are a lot of ways to tell a story. So when you sit down to write, you can't feel like I'm not hitting the one way that I'm supposed to tell a story. You know, like, oh, I'm doing this wrong or something should have been better or whatever. There are so many different ways that you could have told a story. And so whatever it is that you're writing and whatever is coming to you is coming on purpose and there's a reason for it. And you may go back and edit that all out. But don't feel so stuck on, you know, you start writing and you're like, ah, that's not right. Erase. Mm, That's not right. Erase versus just keep going. And then eventually you'll find the way you're telling the story. And that's a really helpful kind of mantra to have because in writing and especially like now that the, the book has become better known and people are all asking me what's next and I have this deal for my next two books and I'm working on the novel and I now need to generate more. People expect me to generate I kind of have to get out of my own way and write and not feel this sense of like, okay, now let me go back and it needs to be whatever this perfect notion is more so let's just get through a draft. 
And then we'll see from there. And I can kind of send it to a, a team member and, you know, my editor, I can send it to my talent manager and say, what do you all think? And I'm just going to keep writing. Like you give me that feedback, but now I'm moving on to the next thing versus stopping. And is it the right way? There's not just one way. There are many. Yeah. 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 I like that. That's a good one because it's really, it's that stream of consciousness. Like you learn that often in like writing classes or just reading about writing is yeah, just, if you just flow, it will flow through you at some yeah, point. But eventually. I feel like I've met so many mm. people, once you write a book, people say all the time, I want to write a book and I've been working on a book and whatever for years and years. And so many people are like, I just don't think I'm doing it right. And I'm like, it's not about doing it right. <laughs> feel like it's, you know, right. But there's such a, it is a very vulnerable thing. Um, anytime you're thinking of sharing your writing and people feel very slowed down, I think, by that fear. Good. Thank you for that. You know, I wanted to kind of circle back to something you said about mentors and how your relationships with your mentors have changed and grown since you've you've moved to Los Angeles. And a lot of my guests talk about mentorship and, and how mentors have helped them. So can you tell us more about how you grow your relationships with your mentors uh-huh. and, and, and sustain that? Definitely. And it's so interesting because I have a lot of mentors and none of them are writers. <laughs> so it's not like they're necessarily mentoring me. Like it's not that you have to look for mentors who do the exact same thing that you do. It's more so like who are the people who you're inspired by because of how they live their lives and maybe the fearlessness with which they approach their lives. And a big thing that I realized that I was needing were more women who were very powerful and unapologetic about that and who would not put up with someone kind of just kind of casting them in a category of like, you're someone's partner or whatever, but who would really challenge that. And that's who I started to become very, in that sense, kind of attracted to is like, I need that kind of mentorship. I need to stop doing this to myself sometimes too. And the way others may try to put me in a box. So the way that I foster that is to really be very open to feedback, really be open to different life experiences, but what I can learn from those experiences and also what I think I can contribute. Not that it's a transactional thing. I don't think any of my mentors feel like I've given them as much as they <laughs> But to be open to saying, um, you're also mentoring me and how do I give back to others? So it's not necessarily to them, like, what can I do? Um, you know, is there somebody in your life who wants to be a writer or like a student or one of your kids? And can I do something for them? And also seeing yourself as a person with skills to give to the world. And I think that that's like for at least my mentors, when I am shining my brightest and really stepping into my own and especially as a woman, not taking up space by saying like, thank you for having me. And instead taking up the space by just speaking about who I am and what I'm here to do and not wasting the time that a lot of women waste by the constant like, oh, gratitude. And I'm just so happy to be here. And instead it being like, I'm here for this reason. And this is the work that I do. And how can I help you? And <laughs> et cetera. That's when they're the happiest with me, you know, like, that's like what we want you to do. And then in addition to it, those life skills, you know, like, how do I build wealth? Like, I don't only want to be a good writer. And I don't want to only be influential in that way. You know, I want to also make money for my family, like ask the concrete questions. And how do you sustain a career in writing and make sure that you're not always like a starving artist? And yeah, so just asking the questions, being honest, 
and seeing what you can give back to it and being very open to different forms of mentorship. It's not that you have to find someone in your same exact. Great. Thank you for that. Okay. So we know you as a writer. We know you're a mom. So tell us who is Anna when she's not writing and thinking about writing. Are you a reader? Are you a watcher? Are you a listener? And what are some of your favorite reads, watches, or listens? I love that question. <laughs> I am a reader, watcher, listener. Well, honestly, less of a listener. I'm going to be honest about that. But I watch a lot of TV. I feel like at the end of every day, I just need that moment where you turn your mind off and you just like get lost in whatever. So recently, I finally have been catching up on the Ted Lasso bandwagon. And I really love it. I think it's a really beautiful comedy that also gets serious and just celebrates a lot of different people. So I'm all about it. Have you heard of Ted Lasso? I've heard of it, but I've just, I, it's been a while since I heard of it. Yeah, that's recent because it's been around for a while, right? Yeah. Well, I think maybe like during the pandemic is when it came out. And so many people were like, Ted Lasso. And I was like, I don't have Apple TV, so I'm just not going to get into that one. And then I realized I did have Apple TV on my <laughs> recently. And I love when you can just watch something for 30 minutes, you know, like shorter episodes, not as long. You don't have to get like super into it, maybe even like a lunch break when you just need a little reset. Especially when you're writing all day long and you're just sort of like, oh, my brain, my head is hurting and I just want to have a little lunch break. So that's been what I've been watching recently in terms of what I have been reading. I am doing research for my next book right now. So I'm really deep into a lot of patriarchy theory. What I'm trying to do is what Isabel Wilkerson did in Cast, where for those who have or haven't read it, she compares the American racial caste system to the Indian caste system, as well as the Holocaust and making sure people understand that we have a similar organization in the U.S. And something that many different scholars have been saying in different ways, but she brings it all into one book through stories that you can really latch onto and just really understand these concepts. So I think it's beautiful. I absolutely love Isabel Wilkerson, definitely someone who I'm always trying to emulate and emulate that, but for American patriarchy and the way in which, um, patriarchy is impacting everything that we do. But I realize a lot of people don't have an understanding of what it actually means and how it plays out. And so with the three mothers, so many people would ask me, how did they get erased? Why did this happen? And I am sitting there thinking, do people not understand that this is how patriarchy works, especially with racism and capitalism? And I realized, no, I guess they don't. There's not any trade books that would do this for patriarchy where you have storytelling and you're getting into people in history, but through this lens of like characters and feeling engaged in that work. And it's not just theory and it's not just jargon. Like this is how on a day-to-day basis patriarchy is playing out in America. That's what the book is all about. And so every chapter I'm kind of telling a different person's story to help us understand theory around sexism and patriarchy. And so I go into these deep dives into articles on specific people. And that's what a lot of my reading is right now. Not a lot of time for pleasure reading, but this is also pleasure reading in a sense because it's fascinating. I love diving into people and history. And my husband is the first audience member always. And so I'm like, did you know that so and so? Yeah, okay, cool. I love that. It's a lot of fun. We have fun conversations in the Tubbs household. But I don't really listen to many podcasts. I really should. I know it's terrible to say that on a podcast, but I just don't know when I'm going to find time to do that. But I want to. So someday I will. And, you know, um, listening to whatever's playing on Peloton. That's the music. That's how I say it. 
music. You know, I am like, is that a new song? And people are like, that was like, you know, <laughs> 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like it. I'm catching up to it now. It's so. okay. Yeah, that's it. Music is timeless. So when you find it is when it's relevant. <laughs> Um, there was a very specific song that came on on one of these Peloton rides and I told all my friends like there's this new song we heard it and they're like Anna that is Remy Ma from like before we went to college <laughs> <laughs> I missed it but I love it <laughs> yeah yeah that's so funny okay that's great that's wonderful. Well, Anna, this has been so wonderful. It's been great catching up, great seeing your smile and the sun. I can see the California sunshine all in you. So before we sign off for today, do you have any last thoughts you'd like to share with the audience? Mm, last thoughts? I feel like we covered so much and I talked so much. I'm sure they're tired of hearing me. <laughs> no, never. But, no, I, I feel really good. I'm excited to hear the episode and I'm just grateful to everyone for listening. Yay. And you and you came and you did what you were meant to do, which is tell us about the strong work that you're doing. So we're happy. Just for ramble. That. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Just come and talk. <laughs> right. Exactly. All right, listeners, you've been listening to another episode of the podcast. You can catch us each and every Tuesday with new episodes at localcitizenspod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do check out the show notes. They're going to be very rich with information and resources on how to catch up with on as well as a lot of the different authors and individuals that she spoke about. And as always, please share, like, subscribe. It helps people find good content. And until next time, bye for now.